Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country. We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice and what we actually do on the ground. We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join us for Measured Justice. This is Eric Luna, founder of the Academy for Justice and the Amelia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and you're listening to Measure Justice. The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center that aims to connect research with policy reform and to share expert voices. Today, we'll be discussing criminal justice reform at the twilight of marijuana prohibition and in particular, securing the release of those incarcerated for nonviolent marijuana-related offenses. The issue has received increased attention given the sea change in state and local marijuana laws occurring across the nation, as more and more jurisdictions opt for regulation and taxation over crime and punishment. We're fortunate to be joined by two individuals directly impacted by the ups and downs of marijuana reform, as well as one of their attorneys. Luke Scarmazzo co-founded one of the nation's first licensed medical cannabis dispensaries in California in 2004, which he successfully operated until his 2006 arrest by federal authorities. Although his business was completely legal in California, he was convicted under federal law and sentenced to 22 years in prison, of which Luke served nearly 15 years before his release by a federal judge in February 2023. We're also joined by Kerry Dent. Counsel with King and Spalding in its special matters and investigations practice in Washington, D.C., where she focuses primarily on white-collar criminal defense, complex civil litigation, and internal investigations. She successfully represented Luke in obtaining his recent release. And last but certainly not least, we're joined by Weldon Angelos, president of The Weldon Project, co-founder of Mission Green, as well as a music producer and a leading criminal justice reform advocate. Weldon received a full presidential pardon after serving more than a decade of a 55-year mandatory federal sentence for low-level marijuana transactions. Thank you all for joining us today. Let's begin with you, Luke. Could you tell us a little bit about your story, the background, and and what became of the case? Yeah, sure. Uh, Thanks for having me today. My name is Luke Scarmazzo. I grew up in California, kind of immersed in like the cannabis culture in the early 90s. When California passed their medical cannabis laws in 1996, and then later the the legal dispensing laws in 2004, it was kind of a natural progression for us to move into that market. My good friend of mine, Ricardo Montes, decided that we would open a dispensary in our hometown in Modesto, Uh, went and got our state license and our city's license and kind of checked all the boxes that needed to be checked to, to be able to legally dispense cannabis. Um, and we, we did it successfully for about two years, uh, you know, huge outpouring from the community of support and just like positivity. Uh, you know, I, to be honest, initially when we got into it, it was just kind of like to, to make a good living, but, you know, just a few months into it, I realized like 
we are really making a difference here. We're really helping people out. And then that became my primary purpose is just to kind of continue to serve the community, continue to help and, uh, you know, just be there for everybody. Luke, would you mind, would you mind tell us a little bit about growing up in, in, uh, in Modesto? And, and you mentioned that the, I mean, California has a cannabis culture or a history of cannabis use even sure. at the height of national prohibition, and even state prohibition, state crackdowns. As you said, um, uh, mid 1990s, 1996 there, there, uh, we have big legislative change or big, uh, uh, big initiative change in California. Uh, uh, medical marijuana becomes, uh, a business proposition and a possibility. Um, how does that all, fit? how did that all fit? You, you can't, you grew up in this area. You have this opportunity and you saw it as a business. Tell me a little bit about growing up in that area and how you viewed the law as it changed in the, in that, uh, mid 1990s, uh, through the, uh, uh, through the change of the millennium. I, I mean, growing up in California, like in, in, especially in the central Valley, which is like an agricultural area, um, is you're just, you're just surrounded by cannabis. My, my dad grew and smoked cannabis. All my aunts and uncles grew and sold and smoked cannabis. So from the time I was really young, I was kind of like just, uh, exposed and surrounded by it. So it, it was never anything like that. I viewed as something bad. Like even when I would go into like those dare classes, you know, the drug abuse, uh, resistance education classes that the police departments used to put on in California in the early nineties and eighties. Um, I never like it didn't coincide and mesh with like my view of what cannabis was like. They made it like to where it was such a bad thing. And I saw like growing up, like how much like it helped people, like even like some like the older uh, Mexican grandmas and stuff would make like this, like tincture like type like uh, stuff where they would immerse it in alcohol and use it to rub it on like arthritic joints and stuff like that. So it was like really huge, like just, you know, therapeutically even before i even knew anything about medical cannabis but then um when the law you know i saw like the law enforcement end of it too i saw friends and and uh you know parents of loved ones get arrested for it i saw people go to jail for it i saw uh you know people at school with me get kicked out and expelled um you know so i also saw the dark side of it uh, you know the enforcement history so when met, when California passed their medic, first medical cannabis law in the country in 1996, the Compassionate Use Act, uh, you know, it was it was kind of a game changer. I mean, it was at first people were kind of unsure about it. They didn't know, like, yo, are, like, are police officers really going to recognize this? Are we legit to be able to like possess and use cannabis, you know, without fear of prosecution? Um, so it, you know, it took a, a few years for it to kind of work its way into the community to where people trusted the law and trusted that it was going to be effective. Um, and then in 2003, the state legis legislature passed uh, what's called the Medical Marijuana Program Act. And that kind of established the basis for collective dispensaries and some very, very loose and vague regulation around those um, and just kind of how that was going to go, go down and how those things were going to operate. Um, so, and that's, and that's about the time that, that Ricardo and I got into, uh, the dispensary business. Um, Ricardo was the first Mexican American dispensary owner in the United States, uh, which is something that he's very proud of. And, you know, just being able to show people in the community that like, Hey, there's people that look like you and people that, um, are here that, that, 
can are doing the things that maybe that people that you like you want to do you know and people you know were surrounded in in our community um looked up to us you know saw that what, what we were doing was taking a huge chance because we knew that you know modesto california generally is a left-leaning blue state you know as many people know but there's pockets in california that are are conservative and the central valley is one of those so uh you know we knew that when we opened the dispensary that we were gonna meet a little pushback we knew that there there might be some hostility from from local law enforcement um we never imagined that it was going to be on the level that it ended up being but you know it was something that we kind of had in the back of our mind the whole time, like, hey, you know, this is something new, something that they're not used to, uh, and they, you know, they might give us some opposition to it. Um, so, yeah, just kind of growing up in the, in that culture, it was a natural progression to go into the market, and then it was a very successful couple of years before we were eventually raided by uh, federal drug agents in 2006. Luke, if you don't mind me asking, what tell us about uh, the, the, you can tell us about the the raid and what happened immediately afterward, because um, I know that is of some some real interest. Yeah, um, we were in discussions with the city council at the time. Um, they were trying to basically zone out the dispensary using their zoning laws, um, but since we were already in business and conducting business, um, when they passed their ban they didn't realize that the ban would actually create a monopoly for us because we would be what's called grandfathered in because we were already in business. So when the city realized that they had created like a, you know, for lack of better words, monopoly in the area within like the a hundred mile radius of the central Valley, um, they called in the federal government. And when they did that, you know, it was basically just handing the federal government a uh, drug, offense case on a silver platter and when they came in uh it was on, on the morning of september 27th which was actually my daughter's birthday and i and we had plans to fly down to disneyland and kind of have her birthday down in disneyland with some of her cousins and family members um and they had flown ahead of me because i had a um what they called a probation home visit uh just kind of like to come in and check the house and do things like that and uh it was actually the federal government kind of staging a, like a fake visit. And they came in, they kicked in the door. They, 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 they knew I was alone. They came in with machine guns and assault rifles and military kind of gear and, and tactical gear and stuff like that. I don't know if they were doing like training or something like that, but it's like really frightening sight to see like basically like an army or a militia just kind of like raid your residential home in like a really quiet neighborhood. So they, they came in, arrested us, arrested me, uh, simultaneously raided the dispensary, you know, broke in the windows and the doors there, uh, you know, raided Ricardo's home with his mother. So it was a it was a really traumatic event. There was kids that were present um, in some of the houses that they raided and, and stuff like that. It was really just like a what we felt at the time was an unnecessary use of force and just overkill. Like we, we were just a regular you know, taxpaying licensed dispensary that, you know, didn't need to have that type of uh, force shown with, you know, assault rifles and machine guns and tactical gear and all that craziness. But yeah, so they, they raided us, arrested us, and then drove us down to Fresno. And uh, 
when they drove the, the federal court down in Fresno, California, um, we were arraigned and that's when we found out the amount of time that we'd be facing. And that was a real shocker. Uh, when they, when they presented it originally, uh, we were facing a, what's called 30 to life sentence. Three, the fed federal government uses months in their sentencing calculations. So it was 360 months to life. And that was like a bombshell. Uh, I never even realized that you could get that type of time for cannabis. You know, I didn't know anybody who had been in trouble in the federal government. You know, that was, this was my first, you know, federal drug case, uh, you know, first time ever being uh, put in prison or anything like that. So I had no idea that, that they handed out these type of sentences. So yeah, it was a shocker. And then it was kind of like just having to figure that out and, and uh, figure out like what, how we were going to proceed from there. What did, how did your family um, absorb this? How did you, uh, and your friends, obviously you, you, uh, um, it had an obvious direct impact on uh, obviously your child and your uh, other loved ones, also your business partner and friends. Yeah. Uh, what, what did you, how did it, how did you feel this and experience this as you were being, as you were being processed and, and eventually being locked up and, and putting on trial? I just, you know, I, I guess I'm an optimist because I felt like when this gets heard by somebody who has is reasonable, somebody who has some sense that like they'll look at this and they'll say, oh, wait, these, this is not what this is being portrayed as. These guys were a legal cannabis dispensary. And like, I don't know, I guess my naivety kind of made it to where I thought this would get kind of figured out. Like they would they would say, OK, well, that this is not a drug kingpin because we were originally charged with a continuing criminal enterprise, which for your listeners, if they're not familiar with that, is kind of like what they call like a, a drug kingpin offense, normally reserved for international drug cartels and, you know, things of that nature. Um, so, you know, I just we I thought that it would be kind of figured out and worked out. And then they would say, OK, like this wasn't the case. And we would kind of maybe get a slap on the wrist or even a, a couple years or something of, of incarceration when my family and everybody realized that that wasn't going to be the case it was super traumatic i mean my daughter at the time was was four years old uh, it was really hard to explain to her uh you know the intricacies of our case like yeah we were doing this legally in the state of california but it was illegal federally i mean that's hard to explain to an adult today you know what i mean so Explaining it to a uh, four-year-old child was was very challenging. And then just, you know, just the tremendous cost that it puts, not only financially, but just mentally and physically on a person's family. Like my family, you know, went through so much. We didn't really have the, the resources to be able to fight the Goliath of the federal government at the time. Uh, you know, the lawyer fees and stuff like that drain everybody's bank accounts and you know but it was something that once i realized that they weren't going to change the the law that or the offense that we were charged with um that we had to fight it you know it wasn't something that i was willing to like accept and just lay down and, and take this drug kingpin offense because it was it wasn't legit it was i didn't feel like it was something that we we had done. I didn't feel like what we had done was wrong. Um, I felt like we were uh, providing a service to the community, and it, it for for 
for us to accept a charge like that and be able to admit guilt in that sense was just not something that we were prepared to do. It is, Luke, it is hard to, people can understand from your perspective and from the people who were prosecuted during that era and subsequently that you have the federal government, excuse me, the individual states like California deciding that they will um, allow, regulate, tax uh, medicinal marijuana and, and now in more recent times, recreational marijuana. Um, and at the same time, you have this carpet ban on the federal government and um, exactly how are you supposed to to order your affairs, right? Uh, you have a business that's that's needed uh, uh, and seen as needed by um, a variety of people uh, in a given jurisdiction. You have that jurisdiction jurisdiction of millions of people uh, voting to approve it by initiative and the support of subsequent legislation by the state legislature and by um, the governor's office. And that story being repeated over and over again, and yet on the books, you continue to have the federal government with a blanket ban. And um, as a, another, you did a great job in explaining kind of this, the history behind it. As another background, uh, bit, bit of background, the cases would be denied by the Supreme Court at times. There was an interstate challenge commerce, uh, a challenge to the interstate uh, uh, commerce clause as a basis for the federal government being able to regulate dispensaries like Luke's, and that was denied in Raich. Um, there was a claim, a, a kind of a common law necessity defense that was the argument that somebody who's sick, they they have to get the medicine. And if the law bans that, that that, that should not be, there should be some kind of defense that was uh, rejected in the Oakland cannabis buyers uh, uh, case. Uh, but your experience was one that, that fit before both Congress and some of its uh, some of its legislation and, 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 a, and a now famous writer to 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 uh, to spending and also in a. Uh, a, a U.S. Uh, Justice Department's memo, now called the Cole Memo, which uh, kind of limited federal enforcement uh, against um, uh, med medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. You existed in that kind of nebulous region before it, and yet you continued to be locked up after it when others were being allowed to do the exact same thing. How did this feel as you were behind bars and seeing people uh, engaged in the exact same activity as you were? And not only were they not being prosecuted, uh, but they were pro uh, prospering uh, quite well. It was it was frustrating, very frustrating. I mean, uh, taking you back, like we were going through trial actually when Rach was was uh, or or it was just before trial when Rach was just uh, decided by the Supreme Court because that was it was Ninth Circuit law before that, and that kind of allowed us to. It, there was an injunction against the DA for any kind of prosecutions and arrests. And then kind of midway through our, in 2005 is when rates got decided by the Supreme Court. So we were, yeah, we were like right in the middle of it. Uh, Robert Rach, who actually argued that case, uh, it was the case with his wife at the time, Angel Rach, uh, was our corporate attorney. He was the one who helped us set up the dispensary. So like we were very immersed in that law and those cases and things like that. And then- And as, as, as the, the state, you start to see the cases- they continue after, uh, particularly when um, the changes that occurred under the uh, the Obama administration, but also by legislation, by uh, uh, yeah. writers, the people were no longer being prosecuted the way you were. Uh, what, what did that? What did you think that you would be um, released quick without uh, much ado at that point? And 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 what were your feelings about about uh, the the state of affairs that you saw yourself in? Yeah. Um, the when the Cole memo came out, we were already several years into our incarceration. And I mean, I applauded it. I was like, oh, finally, you know, somebody in the DOJ is starting to realize that, you know, 
this is not something that's right. This is not something that's, this is an injustice to, to continue to prosecute and incarcerate, uh, you know, state legal individuals who were following state cannabis laws. So, you know, I, we applauded it and I, we thought that it would be something that would, would free us, you know, and then subsequent, you know, when California went recreational, um, I, we just continued to see kind of the, the needle and the pendulum swing in our direction. And I didn't never, I never in a million years thought I would have to continue to do so much time, so many years after all those things changed. And then just sitting in prison and seeing corporations and governments kind of bank, you know, millions and millions of dollars um, in revenue from the legal cannabis industry was just, it was, it was extremely frustrating because you know, there would be people that were in prison with me um, that would say, like, how are you still here? You know, what? like, you should be out by now. Like, why? Why? It's legal everywhere. It's legal in your state. Like, why are you continuing to serve this sentence? And I, I really didn't have, like, a, a good answer for him. You know, I just said, you know, it's something, you know, justice, the wheels of justice move slowly. And it's something that we had to continue to fight, fight for. Um, so yeah, it was super frustrating, but at the same time, like I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for cannabis reform and the therapeutic values of cannabis. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm also applauding it because I know as it becomes more accepted by the mainstream and, and, and governments become involved and stuff like that, that there, that it also will have a lot of progress and positive effects on people and the people that consume cannabis. So it was like, you know, it was mixed feelings. It was frustrating to have to continue to serve the sentence, but also, you know, I was encouraged by the progress that the cannabis industry was making. Uh, that's outstanding, Luke. And just to fill in a, a couple of points for a reader, uh, for our listeners who may not uh, know about this. Um, uh, the Cole memo was, was uh, introduced. It's a guidance uh, issued by the Central Justice Department. This was under the, uh, this is during the Obama administration in the Holder Justice Department. Uh, Attorney General Holder's uh, Chief Lieutenant, um, uh, Chief Deputy uh, James E. Cole, issued a memorandum that uh, essentially laid out kind of the the, the rules of conduct or or uh, those situations where uh, the federal government would think that it should ha- be obliged uh, to be involved in cannabis enforcement, and then leaving much of it uh, otherwise to uh, uh, the the state process, at least when they determined that marijuana should be legal. Um, we also mentioned this this uh, this rider. Uh, originally, it was called the I believe the Rohrbach Farr uh, Amendment, and then more recently, I think it's the uh, the Joyce Blumenauer. Uh, amendment and it, this um, was a rider that placed on the Justice Department's uh, own budget, passed by Congress, limited their ability to prosecute medical marijuana cases. So, with that, let me let me uh, look. Let me uh, bring in Weldon Weldon Angelos. Um, Weldon, could you tell us a little bit about uh, about when you first became aware of Luke's case? Um, uh, as as many listeners will know. Um, you're a leading advocate uh, in criminal justice reform, and in particular in cannabis reform. And you uh, had a, a perhaps a, a factually different uh, case that preceded, uh, or what was in terms of prosecution preceded uh, a Luke's, or or around the same time in terms of, of some of some experiences. There was not a legal marijuana or a, a recreational or medicinal marijuana um, uh, uh, law in Utah. But you certainly got hammered by a, a statute, and there was a lot of discretion in it, as as was the truth was the case in uh, in Luke's case. 
So could you tell us a little bit about, about um, what you were thinking about uh, in terms of trying to change the law so that people like Luke um, wouldn't have uh, these kinds of consequences in the future, as well as trying to get people like uh, Luke out of prison, both uh, in the past and today? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I first met Luke in Lompoc. I think I had, we had just concluded the final legal challenge in my case that left me with the only avenue to pursue being clemency from President Obama. And one of my, our mutual friends who were I was incarcerated with, who's now deceased, I believe he passed away two weeks before his release date, um, had introduced me to Luke because he was telling me about, you know, we had similar cases. I had a marijuana case. Everyone knew I had 55 years for, for cannabis. And, you know, a lot of people didn't believe it. They thought there must be, you know, some kind of a, a murder in my background or something in the case. No one could really believe that I got 55 years. And so... Um, I, at the time, I had, you know, organized a pretty substantial group of advocates, legal scholars, you know, clemency lawyers, and former federal officials and lawmakers to support me. And so I sort of had a really good understanding of, of the clemency process. And when I learned about Luke's case, <clears throat> I felt like he would get clemency before I would. Because, you know, he was following state law. He was out of California. Um, you know, there were so many um, compelling facts about Luke's case. So I, you know, had Luke go to the law library with me and sit down and talk about his case. And, you know, we did a few uh, legal uh, motions in his case before we shifted to uh, writing his clemency petition for him and his co-defendant. Um, fast forward, I think it was, you know, four four years later, you know, I was informed I was getting out of jail and I believe we had just submitted Luke and Ricardo's clemency petitions. And so <clears throat> when I got out, I think me and Luke, when I got out, you know, Luke and I did our last uh, uh, tr walk on the track. They have this track that, uh, like, that goes around like a football field. And so Luke and I were, you know, going, going through the, the tracks, just talking about, you know, what I could do to help, you know, get his story out there in the national media and just, you know, try to help him get clemency. Um, I was really shocked, though, that I got out before Luke did just because, you know, even though I sold a small quantity, you know, they alleged that there was guns involved, they alleged gang activities. So my case was a little different. And I looked at Luke's as being a shoe in um, for Obama. <clears throat> and so when I had gotten out, I started working um, with uh, Mark Holden from Coke and a few other advocates that were in direct conversations with the White House, particularly Valerie Jarrett. And so I had sent the petitions over to them, asking them to get this directly to the White House. And at the end of Obama's term, unfortunately, um, Luke's petition was denied, but they granted Ricardo's. And so that was something, you know, there was at least some positive that came out of that. But I was shocked probably just as much as Luke was that he didn't get clemency because of, you know, the basic facts around his conviction, you know, were just something that I thought Obama would, you know, would grant for sure. And then later I learned that President Obama, his policy on clemency was if the prosecutor doesn't support your clemency petition, you don't get clemency. And that was sort of what was holding up my clemency petition because my prosecutor was, you know, he didn't want me out of jail. He didn't want me to beat the plea offer, which I did. He didn't want me to to beat anything, even the, you know, the, 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 um, the other sentences that I could have received under, you know, the guidelines. And so, um, but when I finally got out, you know, I was really hopeful that Luke would get out. He didn't get out under Obama. And so, you know, when we started working on a national campaign to get his story in the spotlight. Um, when, when Trump was elected, you know, we were devastated. We thought for sure that 
we got to find another way out. You know, this ain't going to work. We got to find a way to get you out, um, you know, through the courts or some other uh, way. And to our surprise, when I was invited to the White House to talk about the First Step Act, I saw an opening because I was, you know, conversing with uh, members of the Trump administration, um, starting with Jerron Smith, who was over criminal justice reform. And so, you know, we, I, I was always talking about Luke's case to them. You know, we went to the White House and filmed an interview there um, prior to the First Step Act's passing. Um, but when the First Step Act passed, um, you know, Luke had the same idea I did, that this compassionate release provision of the First Step Act, not only does it apply to the 924C cases, but it applies to people who are incarcerated for cannabis that would no longer be prosecuted today. And so I think Luke was in the shoe at the time when he was writing this pro se compassionate release uh, motion based on, you know, the new First Step Act. And so that motion was submitted um, pro se, but it was, it, I think it was pending for like three years. And so we shifted to uh, clemency under President Trump. And, you know, I think I went, went to the White House maybe about eight times um, and the last two times I went there, I brought support letters for Luke and hand delivered them to the White House. And we had a lot of communications um, with Jared Kushner's staff, uh, with Ivanka Trump's staff, even told you know, that Luke was getting clemency. I think three weeks before Trump left office, right after I got pardoned, I was told that you know Luke was on the list. He was getting clemency. And I sent Luke a message on CoreLinks letting him know he didn't get it, though, because he was in the shoe. And, and I was kind of relieved that he didn't get it because I was worried that he would see it and, you know, be happy and then, you know, not get it. Um, but then the day before the clemencies came out, we were told to go ahead and let his family know that he's getting clemency. Um, and I think it was an hour before the list came out. His name was pulled off the list with I think there was a hundred other people that got their clemency petitions pulled. And that was probably the most devastating time for me as an advocate to see that list come out and Luke not be on it. And then just imagine what Luke is going through after, you know, I told his family and, you know, I, it was confirmed from multiple sources, my source, Alice Johnson's source, that he was getting clemency. And so at that point, I knew the only thing that we could do now is try to get this story in the national spotlight because of what happened with Trump maybe Biden would see this as a problem and want to correct it. Um, and so we were, we, I, I hooked him up with a Forbes reporter and Luke's story based on the, this pardon. Um, it, I think it got a million views in 48 hours. And all of a sudden Luke's story is now all over the mainstream media. Um, it, it actually triggered a question before the white house press secretary on, on the following 420 about Luke's story, where, where the White House agreed that Luke's uh, clemency petition, you know, would likely qualify under President Biden's, um, you know, uh, clemency policies. And so that gave us a little bit of, you know, reasons to be optimistic. Um, but, you know, nothing happened. And um, I'm happy that um, his current lawyer had reached out to Luke about taking over the compassionate release motion that was just sitting there you know, not doing anything. And so when Kerry took over, things started moving a, a lot quicker. That's perfect. Well, because that'll lead us to, to Kerry Dent. Kerry, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what you'd heard about the case, Luke's case, as well as uh, kind of the state of the law as, as it existed coming into this particular litigation? 
before he told us a lot about about the the, the previous uh, cases before the Supreme Court, and then of course Weldon told us about this perhaps change statutorily in the law that might um, allow uh, someone in Luke's uh, situation to get out of prison. So, uh, Kerry, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, I first met Luke work, uh, working on the uh, clemency petition that Weldon was talking about that was filed with the Trump administration. And I had been contact. We King and Spalding had been contacted by the University of Minnesota. They had this trial penalty clemency project and were looking for law firms to take cases on. And Luke's case was assigned to King and Spalding. And I was really just tangentially involved. I was supervising the associates who were working on the case. Um, and I got to know Weldon a little bit, but I, I, I didn't get to know Weldon and Luke really well until after he uh, Luke was not granted clemency by Trump. Um, and that's when Weldon started working with the new pardon attorney that the Biden administration had hired. And he had several meetings with her and started talking with me about how we should work together on a revised clemency petition. I thought that was a great idea because I thought the best arguments in favor of Luke being granted clemency and having his sentence reduced were not related to any sort of trial penalty, but really much more about the changes in the legal landscape with marijuana and his amazing record in prison, all the great things he had done. He had been studying and earned an associate's degree and he was doing volunteer instruction and just lots of positive things. Um, and I so I just thought there were far better things to focus on for his clemency petition uh, than the trial penalty issue. Um, and in the course of working with Weldon and filing a revised petition, I got to know Luke a lot better because he and I were working directly together. We collaborated closely, not just on the facts, but on the law. Luke knows the law better than anybody I know. <laughs> um, and so I think we were a good team. We became good friends and just, I think we were a great sort of team. And he asked me if I would take on the motion for compassionate release that he had pending in the Eastern District of California. And of course, I was thrilled to, to do that. Um, I started out by going back to the very beginning of his case and reading all the sentencing transcripts and the briefs that were filed by the government and by various lawyers that have represented Luke over the years, because I really wanted to understand how his case got to the point where it was when I entered my appearance. I felt really good about his chances on a motion for compassionate release because right before I entered an appearance and filed my first supplemental brief in his in support of his motion, a case was decided in Rhode Island. It was called the Vigno case. And the District of Rhode Island had considered this case, which involved a motion for compassionate release and involved marijuana offenses and a charge and conviction under the same statute, the Continuing Criminal Enterprise Statute. The, the judge in the Rhode Island case thought that this was a very unique situation um, because the Continuing Criminal Enterprise Statute is supposed to be for convicting drug lords, you know, cartel members, people who are out murdering people and burning 
uh, homes down and things like that. It certainly, it, they call it the kingpin statute. That's the nickname of the statute. So it certainly wasn't ever intended to be something that was used to put people who sell marijuana in prison for decades. With that precedent in place, I was optimistic that we were going to be able to do something. But as it turned out, the biggest hurdle we faced at that time, and that, that was just June of last year, was that there's a huge shortage of federal judges in California. And so even though Luke had filed his very good motion for compassionate release on his own back in 2019, there was no judge even assigned to the case. So there certainly was no hope of getting a positive decision that we weren't going to get any decision until we figured out how to get a judge to look at his papers. Um, so that was really the, the first big hurdle. And I spent a lot of time uh, reaching out, emailing and calling different courtroom deputies to see if I could just sort of weasel our way in. And I, I would just ask questions like, how do I get a judge assigned to this case? It seems like it's a mistake. It's been pending for years. There's there's nobody looking at it. Um, it was easy to to play the role of the innocent, stupid lawyer who didn't know how to get a judge assigned because um, I don't practice in California. I'm a Washington, D.C. lawyer. So I kind of played the how does this work in California card <laughs> and it worked. And I got someone to assign his case to they assigned his case to Judge Drozd, and um, that turned out to be a really positive development for Luke because Judge Drozd really takes these compassionate release cases seriously. He considers the facts. He, you know, he's deciding these cases constantly. They have hundreds of them pending in California, and he ruled on several of the compassionate release motions that were pending before him after we filed our uh, supplemental brief on Luke's behalf. Um, but then we still weren't getting a decision. So then we're trying to figure out, well, what's happening here? Why is he ruling on these other motions, but not on our motion? So Luke and I decided, let's do another supplemental brief. So we did that. And just a few months ago, and within a couple of days, Judge Drozd responded and said, I'm ready to rule on this motion for compassionate release, but I'm still troubled by one question, and I want the parties to brief this question, and I want it briefed within, I think it was two days that he gave us to brief the question. And the concern that Judge Drozd had was that Luke's case was different from many of the cases that were being, that were sort of, that he was seeing come through the courts. The, the First Step Act, which was the legislation that in 2018 amended the Compassionate Release Statute and enabled people like Luke to file their own motions for compassionate release rather than having to go through the Bureau of Prisons, which was just a bureaucratic mess. That same statute also reduced quite a few mandatory minimums. The mandatory minimum sentences are very controversial, obviously. And part of what the First Step Act did was reduce some of the mandatory minimums. So some of the statutes that might have been a 20-year minimum before, now they're 10 years. 
And so most of the motions that were being granted were those kinds of cases. In Luke's case, under the continuing criminal enterprise statute, Congress did not elect to change that mandatory minimum. So Luke was sitting in prison for 15 years, but still hadn't served the ridiculous 20-year mandatory minimum that he had been sentenced to. And so not only had he not served the 20 years yet, but the statute hadn't been changed either. And Judge Drist couldn't find another case like that. The Vigneault case, the one that was decided in Rhode Island that gave me a lot of optimism, was different because while it was also a continuing criminal enterprise case involving marijuana, Vigneault had already served more than 20 years. He had some other charges, I think money laundering and other things. So his sentence was longer and he had already reached that 20 year point. So Judge Drose didn't really know if he had authority to sort of undermine what Congress had decided, which was that if you're convicted under the criminal continuing criminal enterprise statute, you're going to have to do a minimum of 20 years. So we spent two days doing a lot of research and writing a good couple of pages on why the statute did permit Judge Drozd to reduce Luke's sentence. Judge Drozd agreed and issued an opinion. It seemed to Luke and to me like it took years, but it actually was just a few days. <laughs> um, and it was, I I thought, the greatest result I'd ever gotten in a case. I, I've never had a client that I thought was more deserving of winning a, a motion than I felt about Luke winning his motion for compassionate release. It was it's a, a remarkable outcome um, and 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 a, a worthwhile of everyone's um, attention, um, whether it's reading the opinion or, or or learning about Luke's entire case and experience. Um, before we go to go uh, and on Luke, let, uh, let me bring back in Weldon. Weldon, it's a, it's actually great to have all three of, of you on the call at the same time. It's you have uh, the an individual who is. Uh, What's the phrase uh, in the room where it happened uh, when you had uh, this piece of legislation being uh, enacted, who was involved behind the scenes in uh, its passage and uh, may have had some kind of inkling of where it might go in terms of interpretation? You, of course, have um, you have uh, Luke himself, the case um, that that is is the it's the poster case for um, uh, for uh, this this particular provision and its uh, appropriate use. And and then of course we have have uh, uh, Carrie who uh, executed on on that that statute in and making it meaningful in Luke's uh, in Luke's case in particular, and and establishing hopefully a precedent that um, allows other uh, worthwhile cases to be considered under this provision. Given that background, um, what do you see for the future? What do you see for the future in terms of relief for those who have uh, have been convicted uh, and have been sentenced? Uh, in in marijuana cases, cases that do not involve involve violence, uh, whether it's federal or state, um, and then I'll, I'll, we'll turn to Luke to get his final thoughts about about his release. Yeah, well, what's what's interesting about um, Luke's opinion, um, and this is something, and, and I think Carrie kind of alluded to that, is that previous to Luke's, no court had explicitly ruled that 
the, the same way that we argue Luke's where, you know, it wasn't a statutory change like 924C. The majority of compassionate release motions were based on medical. If somebody was, you know, uh, maybe had some medical conditions that would likely lead to death if they caught COVID or cancer or something like that, uh, something yeah, like or, or respiratory disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if somebody had a, uh, were sentenced under, uh, a, a statute that has since been changed, like Section 924C or the 851 enhancement, the First Step Act changed both of those, and so the majority of courts were. These, by the way, at, just, just for our, just for our audience, those two are they get, had nasty mandatory minimums connected with them. That's that, that's correct, Weldon. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, how we were arguing Luke's and, and we actually, you know, we had a few issues along the way with Luke's. Um, we had we had a court appointed attorney who fumbled, you know, badly during a hearing that went pretty terrible. And so, you know, I organized a support letter um, that had a bunch of high profile figures on it and sent it directly to the judge after the hearing explaining like, you know, these are the compelling facts about Luke's case. Um, but Luke's case was different. You know, it, we, it was based on policy changes. The, the DOJ is no longer prosecuting uh, meta or any cannabis cases in California period, whether it's medical or now adult use. And so that was sort of the difference where the judge was struggling here. It wasn't something we could say, oh, today his sentence would be five years or 10 years, we were saying that he would not be charged, period. And so I think that's the interesting thing with this case, because we had filed a, a number of compassionate release cases based on changes to marijuana law. Um, and, and it was mostly policy, but state law. And so in a number of the cases, the judge would not go as far as the judge did in Luke's case, the judge would say, you know, or at least not even answer the question uh, about the marijuana changes and rule in a di on something different. And so Luke's case has the potential to open up that door for not just people that are, you know, in there for following state law under the medical marijuana laws, but anybody who's in there in a state that is went legal where they, they their case would not be brought in federal court today, even if it was illicit market. I think Luke, the reasoning in the judge's decision, what I think would apply to those cases as well. And so I do think that Luke's case is, you know, definitely going to be beneficial to a lot of the cases we're going to be arguing um, in the future. Definitely. It's precedent setting for the reasons that you mentioned, Weldon. It is, it is, it goes below an otherwise applicable mandatory minimum. And for, for our, our audience members, mandatory minimums mean, are what they are. They mean that you have to serve that amount of time with a very small discount for, 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 uh, uh, good service in, in prison. Um, uh, and, and then of course, as you mentioned that previously, the, the, the fulcrum for allowing compassionate, um, a release. Um, was a personal sickness, right? Someone being being personally uh, very ill, oftentimes elderly inmates, and uh, and and that means that a big chunk of those who are uh, serving what sure seem to be unjust uh, unjust sentences um, don't wouldn't fall under those those kinds of exceptions. Uh, whereas Luke's uh, uh, case, as argued by Kerry and is supported by by yourself through the legislation and and in your subsequent works, uh, opens up an exception that is far broader. So let's let's turn to Luke for the for, the, for for some final thoughts. Luke, tell us how uh, what how you felt. When how did you hear about the decision that you were going to be released? Tell us about that experience. Tell us what it was like to be released in your first hours and days of freedom. Yeah, it was really kind of unexpected because as Kerry had had spoken about, um, we had waited a long time, and I kind of well, let me. I want to just kind of pause in the middle of this and just say like. Without Weldon's advocacy and without King and Spalding and Kerry coming on 
and taking my case and and pushing it over the finish line, I would still be in prison. I just kind of want the audience to kind of for that to set in because it it really is that monumental of of a situation. And without the without those two people, I would I would still be in federal prison. And Carrie is being a little bit more modest. Um, she's 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 a brilliant attorney. What she filed to to convince the judge that he had the authority to rule in our case was one of the most brilliant two page motions that I think I've ever seen. I mean, she literally crushed it. So I just wanted to like, kind of take a, take a second to acknowledge both of that and give them both recognition on that. When, when, when Carrie and I were waiting for this decision, you know, it was like, she said, it was only a matter of days, which felt like years. It kind of came out of the blue because it was on a Friday morning. And I didn't expect the decision to come on a Friday just because of just, you know, the logistics of, of, you know, the judge having to notify the prison and, and, and all that stuff. So when I woke up Friday morning, I kind of just did the normal prison routine, got up, made some coffee, got ready to work out. I went and got onto my computer or, or like, like terminal that they let everybody use to get a, a, a security emails. And I saw that I had a significantly amount or significantly more emails than I usually had. So I, I knew something was up. So I, I clicked on the first email. The e- it was from Carrie. And the subject line said, you're a free man. So I just kind of like stared at the computer. I, like, it was such a shocking moment um, because we had worked so long for, to, to, for that moment. I, waited 15 years to read those words. So I just, I was in shock. I didn't even, I didn't even really know, understand or know how to process it. Um, I just stared at the computer for a minute. I went over and logged out and put my coffee down in my, in my cell. And then I thought to myself, I have to go back and read that again. Cause I, I don't like, I may have read that wrong. Like, cause that, it was that like, surreal to me so i went back in i logged in again read carrie's email again read you know weldon's and everybody else's emails and it was real and i i sat there and um ran to the phone the pay phones and i called my daughter and it was early in the morning and uh she was just kind of getting up and getting her day started and i said hey how you doing she was like oh i'm doing good i said well guess what and she said what I said, I'm coming home. And she goes, wait, what? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm coming home. And she just started crying and, and getting excited. And I said, yeah, it, it's over, baby. It's over. So yeah, it was a, it was a really emotional moment. Uh, and it, it was, I was just so thankful. I was so thankful. Uh, like I said, it was brilliant, brilliant law work by Carrie. Uh, just, she came in pushed it over the finish line, understood the law so well, um, and got an opinion that was issued from the judge that is really an unprecedented decision. Um, This judge really went in depth on the changes in the legal landscape surrounding cannabis. And um, I think it's a, it's a opinion that's going to be able to be used by a lot of cannabis cases a lot of people that are sitting there in a situation where uh, maybe their statutory mandatory minimums didn't change. So th- this really worked out better than clemency. I mean, I know for years we tried clemency 
uh, Weldon knows it better than most. Um, Kerry, you know, came in and was and did a, a awesome uh, supplemental clemency petition. And but if we would have got granted clemency, I would have just been out with you know a letter from the president that says congratulations and that's it. Here now we have ammunition to be able to go before other courts and say, hey, look, judge, this authority is granted to you. It can be used in this case, and you will arrive at the right decision if you release these people under these conditions. So, I mean, it's really, really, like, I can't stress enough or emphasize enough, like, how much better it is to get out under this statute with this opinion in hand than it was to even get clemency. So I'm a firm believer of everything happens for a reason. This happened. Um, God is great. Terry Dent and King and Spalding are awesome. And, and, and Weldon and his advocacy, like really put us on the map and, and got me to where I can talk to you guys today on this, on this phone call. So yeah, it's a, it's a blessing and I'm just like super thankful and just really happy to be here. That's, that's, that's great, Luke. And I, and just kind of a, a note on that because you, you raised a really good point. Uh, the, the presidential pardons or, or in clemency in various forms of clemency, including, um, uh, sentence commutations. Um, these are acts of grace, but they are not, they do not, uh, uh, uh expunge the conviction. They do not, uh, they're not a statement by the president that an individual, um, uh, is released of all consequences necessarily. Uh, Congress in terms of expungement can, can do, do work that uh, literally removes um, uh, the records or has other kinds of prophylactics to make sure that there aren't ongoing consequences to those who have suffered convictions or arrests. As you said, it is right. If it's possible, sometimes the, the cleanest and, and, uh, uh, and best way in many cases, um, is to, uh, have a, a statute that provides guidance and the basis for a court to be able to release these individuals using that, uh, that, uh, article three power of, of, of federal courts. And the independence and neutrality they have to be able to assess these ca- uh, these cases uh, on an individual basis. Um, Luke, last last point. Uh, you've been out for for a short period of time, um, and I know you've you've had a chance to, to reestablish your life with your you, with your family and 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 with others, your loved ones. You've seen the um, uh, the circle of support that has come around you, uh, and will continue to be there as you move forward. What what would you say? What would you say to others? What would you say first thing to your to uh, uh, those uh, those who are incarcerated, maybe for marijuana, maybe for other nonviolent offenses or drug crimes, who are still locked up? What would you say to uh, others about criminal justice reform generally? And um, uh, what do you see um, in terms of your future, uh, in terms of, of the next steps for you? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the main things I would say to anybody sitting in prison right now with a cannabis offense is. Don't give up hope. The, the thing that separated, I think, a, a lot of people who are successful is not like luck or, or skill or anything. It's just the will to not give up. And throughout our incarceration, uh, and Weldon could relate to this, is we, di- we never gave up. We continued to fight, and you have to continue to fight for justice. You just can never give up. And since I've been out, I want, you know, I took a, I've been out, I think, uh, you know, about five weeks now. Um, and I've taken this initial time to kind of just reconnect with the family and, you know, enjoy every moment of freedom. But, um, so many people were involved 
in my release and, and my eventual freedom. Um, that it's time to pay it forward. I'm, we're going to circle back uh, with with Weldon, with Carrie, and we're going to we're going to circle back for anybody who's incarcerated for cannabis. And I want them. To, I want it to be 100 percent clear that we are going to continue to fight for them. We're going to continue to advocate for them. And anyone who's in there with an unjust sentence, we're coming back for you. We're coming back. We're going to make a full circle. We're going to make sure that people come out. We're going to do the advocacy work, the hard advocacy work that we have to do on the ground here. We will meet with lawmakers. We will meet with the White House. We will do justice panels and talks. And we will continue to do those things until every single person incarcerated for cannabis is out, period. I can't be more clear than than that. So it, it doesn't stop here. Now, I mean, for me, the, the, the work just begins now. And it begins now, and it's it's something that I'm extremely passionate about, and it's something that we will continue to do until it's achieved. That brings us to the end of our time today. We want to thank our guests for a really terrific discussion. Wilden Angelos, Luke Scarmazzo, and Carrie Dent. Thanks also to our producer, Amina Ketchin Kamel. This product is a service of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, I'm Eric Luna, and this has been Measured Justice.